You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Man, after that focal passage, I can obviously see why you came out here today. So thanks for... It's pack, pack the pew Sunday, um, jumping into Hosea. So my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Whenever I get to marry someone, that is, officiate their wedding, um, you know, I always talk to them in the time leading up to and and my wife, Kim, and I have like probably sat in 20 or 25 living rooms and talked through kind of the, the foundations of marriage and pre-marriage care and counsel and all that stuff. And, and we always spend time talking through Ephesians chapter 5. And Ephesians was a letter written in the New Testament by a guy named Paul to the church at Ephesus. And he talks about a lot of things in there, but one of the things he talks about are kind of relationships and how we are to interact with one another through certain relationships, and one of those is that of the husband and the wife. And so we talk about Ephesians chapter 5 because it paints a foundation for the larger purpose of marriage. Like marriage is bigger than just kind of love one another or find someone that you can tolerate until you, you know, move on from this life. It's bigger than that. And so the analogy in Ephesians chapter 5 is, is that of Christ and the church. And what Paul does is he connects that analogy, Christ and the church, he connects it to the husband and the wife. And the context is, is lots of things, uh, but, but it's a, a really sweet display for one another and for the world to witness. And, and what he says is, is that, that kind of intimate relationship is also reflecting uh, the love and respect that Christ has for his church. And so the husband gets to love his wife, and, and the wife gets to love her husband as Christ loves the church and as the church loves her husband, Christ. And so that's, that's pretty cool. It paints a beautiful picture. It's, it's, it's a sacrificial servant leadership, and it's delightful submission, and it's vows of commitment, and it's faithfulness to, to live those vows out. And all those things kind of are the bedrock of, of a healthy marriage, or what we would say like the marriage covenant, or the commitment that we make in marriage one to another. And what's sweet and, and really challenging is that it's a picture that we get to live out with one another, and when a marriage flourishes, God's design and God's devotion is reflected for his people and it's reflected to his people in the most intimate relationship that humans have. So marriage is, is bigger than just hanging out together until you move on from this life. We have to understand that. The beauty of our relationship with God is, is that it's more than just God and servant which we know that he's God and we are not. And so there's God and servant. That is part of our relationship. But our relationship with God is, is more than just parent and child. We pray what? Father. So by like design and by name, he is parent and we are children. He's more than just shepherd and sheep, although all those analogies are great. He is the shepherd and we are just clumsy sheep, like just roaming around. He's protecting us and he's leading us by quiet waters and green pastures and he's caring for us. So you had all those things together, and, and we are also, he is groom, and we are bride. 
like the most intimate relationship. And the beauty of these relationships is that it magnifies God's love for his people and it magnifies our love back to the Lord. Like what a sweet thing. But, but that relationship also magnifies the tragedy of the flip, right? And, and the opposite is true as well. Unfaithfulness in, in marriage paints a mural of the pattern of relationship between God and his people. He is God and, and his people serve other gods. He is father and we are rebellious child. He is shepherd and we long for other pastures and we follow other voices to shepherd and to care for us. He is faithful groom and we find ourselves in bed with other lovers. That's, that's what we're kind of seeing in here. And, and so as we kick off Hosea, divine pursuit, we will receive some swift punches to the gut, none less than this reality, which is the main idea for us today. That God's relationship with his people is the story of his commitment to an unfaithful bride. And, and we'll see this kind of unravel or unfold in, in a couple ways that, that uh, first, there will be no more peace for his bride, that there will be no more pardon. And, and thirdly, there will be no more people, that, that we are no longer the Lord's people. And, and so that's what we're looking at today. And, and if you would, I just want to pray that God would open our hearts and, and eyes and minds as we sit under this word this morning. God, thanks for the gift of, of your word that you laid down for us so long ago. 2,700 years ago, you, you demonstrated a relationship between your people and, and yourself, and, and we get to learn from them. And you have preserved this for us that we might be warned in the same way, that we might grow in the same way. And so today, would you, would you magnify the impact of my words and do with them what you will as we look at this passage in your perfect book? And would you um, we just remove me from all the places where I would take away from your glory. Thank you for your love for us. We need you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's jump in here. Hosea, uh, I, I hope after today we have a little better understanding of kind of what we'll be sitting in together as we learn for, um, gosh, like until the World Cup starts. Oh, you don't know when that, okay. Until, until Thanksgiving-ish, all right, until Advent, we're going to be hanging out in Hosea. And so uh, let's jump in. Hosea 1, 1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So just by that alone, most of us are kind of caught up on where we're at. I'm kidding. I, like, you, I know. It's fine. Right? Totally fine. And then as we read on, we, we see like this is suddenly really weird. This is weird. I, I know this is weird, right? I listen to the focal passage. Like, I know you're like, what in the literal flip is happening? So here's what's happening. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. 
I just told my kids like five minutes ago, hey, there's going to be some words like you don't hear very often, and, and it's coming from the focal passage. So if you don't know anything about the story of God and his people, and you might think that like it's all just like, yeah, I've read some Proverbs, and they seem pretty good, and coffee cup, I've seen scripture on coffee cups, like there are, there are portions of scripture that reveal darkness in like a, a, a really vivid way, and, and this is one of those things. So, so what we see here, kind of context and background, and I threw some stuff on this slide. Hosea, his name literally means Yahweh has delivered. That's a good thing. Uh, he is, we see this word in the beginning, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, that's really common prophet language. These prophets in the Old Testament are God's mouthpieces, and, and the word of the Lord came to Hosea, and he is speaking these words. Uh, you may be more familiar with kind of the heavy hitter prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Well, Hosea, he kicks off the first of the minor 12 prophets. Always looking for band names. Minor 12, that's kind of cool. I don't know, especially if you say, play sad music. It might be really good. So, so he's like the first, and, and, and they're the big winners. These minor prophets are the big winners because, do you know why? Because they preach shorter sermons. That's why they're the bigger winners. So they're not insignificant compared to those other guys, but they just didn't have as many words, right? Shorter number of chapters. Isaiah and those guys, you're talking like 50 plus chapters, and, and most of these are, are uh, much smaller. And so that's why they're called minor, not because they're less significant or anything like that. When you're reading Old Testament prophecy, you have to know this, that it, it's not unfolding like a narrative. It's not a story. It's not like, well, what happens next? What it is, is typically a series of sermons throughout maybe a 30 or 40 year period where this guy was preaching, or he's, he's giving these public declarations, or these proclamations, and so they're kind of just compiling these things and putting them together. They don't necessarily flow, sometimes even chronologically. And so it's not a story. It's just we, we kind of have to, to look at what the words are and see what they mean in the context of when they were declared to begin with. Uh, four kings, a couple, four from Judah, one from Israel. Here's why this is significant. And some of you don't care, but some of you do. And so when God started his people, he called a guy named Abram or Abraham. And he said, hey, we're going to like, you're going to be my guy. And Abram's like, okay. And then he said, man, we're going to like do great things together. And I'm going to make your children as numerous as the stars. And Abraham's like, okay. And then later on, in the fulfillment of doing that, Abraham has lots of kids. And those kids kind of form their own families. And those families form their own tribes. And you have these 12 tribes of Israel. And at one point, then they are, they are united under a king. This is like 11th century BCE, 10, 30, 40, 50-ish. <clears throat> united under a king called Saul. He wasn't very good. And then David, you maybe heard of King David. And then, and so the, the kingdom of God under a, an earthly king existed for a little while, like 130 years. And then it, it busts the Testament. You're trying to figure out, was this before Israel was established, before the nation, was it while they were united? And then mostly it's just a list time and time again of terrible kings. But sometimes you see a couple good kings. What this is saying is the kingdoms were divided. There were 10 tribes to the north. Their capital was Samaria. Two tribes to the south. They only get two tribes, but they get Jerusalem, which seems like kind of a big deal, right? 
the holy city where the temple was and all that. You with me? Let's check out a map. <laughs> Hit that map, Melissa. So this is today what, the, what northern Africa looks like. And just to be clear, if you don't know what part of that's Africa, a couple things, that's okay. And two, you should look at a map, okay? <laughs> and I mean that with all respect, because I get it. Some of you just ain't about that. So that little red dot is kind of where the whole Old Testament happens in, in, in much of the New Testament. Little red dot, Mediterranean Sea, Italy is the boot in coming from the top, northern Africa, Egypt, and then to the right you have, hit that next map. The red part is Israel, and the southern part is Judah. So it's that tiny little spot where the center of the world happens, right? And certainly the biblical world. So if you don't care about that, then you can tune back in, and if you do, then uh, you, know, you can poke around and find more information later. So... Anyway, so back to that other slide, Melissa. It's an 8th century prophet, so this is like in the mid-700s B.C. B.C. is when all this kind of goes down. I want to read a little bit of context to help us, and then I promise we'll get into it and settle in a bit. Are you good? Am I good? I think we're okay. Hosea has been called the deathbed prophet of Israel because he was the last to prophesy before the northern kingdom fell to Assyria in 722 B.C. Assyria is to the north on that map, by the way. His ministry followed a golden age in the northern kingdom with a peace and prosperity not seen since the days of Solomon. So things were going really well when Hosea comes on the scene. He's kind of at the end of that. Unfortunately, with this prosperity came moral decay, and Israel forsook God to worship idols. Is that relatable? Things are really soft and easy and people swerve away from the Lord? I, I think that's relatable. So God instructed Hosea to marry a, quote, wife of whoredom, whose unfaithfulness to her husband would serve as an example of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. That's the analogy. That you are not Hosea, you are Gomer. That's the analogy. That God's people unfaithful to the Lord. Hosea then explained God's complaint against Israel and warned of the punishment that would come unless the people returned to the Lord and remained faithful to him. The book shows the depth of God's love for his people, a love that tolerates no rivals. Hence, for us, the name of this series, Divine Pursuit. It's God coming after his unfaithful bride. And so uh, this kind of quote sums it up. It should be on the screens from Tim Chester. I'll quote him and several others a lot because there's just a lot of work to go into all this stuff week after week. This was the political context in which God called Hosea as a prophet, a time of prosperity that had led to spiritual complacency, a time of spiritual complacency that had led to spiritual infidelity. That's what's happening when, I, when Hosea is coming to speak. And so the relationship was broken because of unfaithfulness between, uh, on the behalf of God's people, and, and this is God's response to this, all right? And so we see the first thing, no more peace. This is the judgment of God, and I'll start reading in verse 3. So he went, this is Hosea, so he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end, 
This is the significant part. I know this is confusing. I will put an end to the kingdom of, of the house of Israel. Like no matter what you can't grasp, that's pretty significant. I will put an end to the house of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Here's, here's the gist of what's going on. The word that they say here, like, they shall call his name Jezreel. That word means no prince or kind of no kingdom. And there are a few instances where that place Jezreel is in the Old Testament. Second Kings chapter 9 and 10. We see some stuff that I'll talk about in just a minute, but there's some mishandlings that led to battle, that led to death. This place has come to reflect the notion of bloodshed. So this place, we're going to call your first child bloodshed. Okay? Baby names, love that stuff. This one, it's not going to make the top ten, right? So one helpful thing, uh, I think this was Tim Chester as well, he says, in 1974, President Nixon resigned because of the Watergate scandal. Maybe you've heard of that. And, and the reason why it's called that is really simple. So the Republican Nixon's people, they sent some spies in to, to find some information in the Democratic headquarters. In the building where that happened, the, the facility was called the, the, the Watergate Complex. So it had nothing to do with anything and so you imagine the headlines, Watergate, scandal, whatever. And then anytime people talk about any political corrup corruption, what do they say? It's like a, it's like a Watergate deal. Or, or we simplify that and we just add the word gate to anything that seems shady. And so like obviously like Tom Brady, footballs, he's, he's taking the air out of them. And what do people call it? Like it's deflate gate. Or I imagine if you're like, I don't know, some mishap in the school cafeteria with spaghetti, you could just be like, hey, like, do you hear about spaghetti gate, you know, spaghetti gate, like fifth period lunch or whatever? Like, you can just add gate, and you know what that means. It's not a good thing. This is what this place had become to be, and there's lots of reasons why, and I'll try to tease out some of them, but of battle and bloodshed. That, that is to say, it was a place of no peace. And so he's saying, name your child Jezreel. Name your child the place of no, no uh, peace. It would be like the equivalent, in a, and I mean this in a sensible, respectful way. It would be like, hey, meet my child Columbine. And you would be like, because for us, Columbine and uh, a shooting and violence and like you... you Maybe they would know what that meant. Or if you, if you gave your child a number, you'd be like, your number is, is 911. And people would be like, why would, you, why would you do that? I remember when Titus was born. And uh, we didn't tell anybody names of either one of our, our children beforehand, you know, because we wanted the, those names to be ours and we're fighting for that, you know. And, and, and so I remember, like, uh, he was born. And then, like, we had to... I had to walk down, like, I think the nurse was pushing her or whatever, but, like, we walked by the waiting room where all the people were. And, like, they could look in, and they could, like, interact, and it's like, you know, all this weird stuff. But, like, the, the thing was, like, hey, meet, meet Titus. And they're like, oh, you know, oh, look at him. It's little Titus. Titus Sidebar, Titus means of the giants. It's interesting. 
later on, uh, Ireland, the same thing. And, you know, we call her Ireland. And her name is, you know, uh, meet Irie. This is Ireland Aisley, meet Irie. And, and Irie means, like, it's okay or, or, like, it'll be fine or whatever, which kind of like both of those things really work out really well. Could you imagine pushing that card and be like, meet bloodshed? <laughs> like, that's as crazy as this sounds. And so, or like this, hey, meet Middle East. Like, what is everybody, they want peace in the Middle East, and where is it not to be found in the Middle Like, meet my child Middle East, and people be like, what? That's as crazy as this is. So God was, was punishing with divine judgment against a bride that had, had turned from him. God was punishing his people with judgment for sin which is a really consistent theme cover to cover with relationship between God and his people. God punishes with judgment sin. Violent bloodshed that had been in this place in Jezreel to the place of his own people. So they would have known that type of thing, but they've had peace and prosperity. And so he's saying, this is what's coming your way. God was taking peace from his people. And later, God will break the bow of the enemies. And we'll we'll read that lots of times. God will go before the Israelites and he will break the bow of the enemy. But, But here he says, he will break the bow of Israel. And what he's saying is, he he rids them of peace by military or, or any other way. They no longer have defense, right? God takes judgments made long ago in this place of Jezreel. Look, I wish I had 90 minutes, but I don't. And I'll just give you a little quick thing. Second Kings 9 and 10, hang out there this afternoon. But, but there's this guy, Jehu, and he goes, and, and he's, he's newly anointed king, and uh, the southern kingdom guy sends out a messenger, and he comes to Jehu, and he says, is it peace? And I think that's like saying, like, do you come in peace? Is, is it peace? And Jehu says, this is basically what he says, shut up. Get behind me. That's what he says. Like, what have you to do with peace? Get behind me. And it keeps going. And they send another messenger. And the messenger says, uh, is it peace? And Jehu says, what are you talking? Like, get behind me. And he goes on in. And then, and then there's a third interaction with a king and, and they say, is it peace? And this is what Jehu says, right? This is all about Jezreel and what this actually meant. What peace can there be so long as, this is 100 years prior to Hosea, what peace can there be so long as the whoring and sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Then Jehu assassinated two kings, and he said, take their bodies and throw them on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. And then he says this, as surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth, The blood of his sons declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. I know you don't get all that. But the point is there's no peace and there's a lot of murder. God takes judgments made 100 years prior and he stays true to them and he flips them and he connects them. When God's people live with a heart for foreign lovers, they heap judgment upon themselves. This is, this is a truth long established for God's people that sin and rebellion leads to a place where peace isn't found. Sin and rebellion in the life of the people who are in 
commitment and covenant with the Lord, when we reject his way and we reject him, peace will not be found. That's what he's, that's what he's telling them. So, so the search for peace apart from God is a, it's a desert thirst grasping at an oasis spring. It's always searching. It's never satisfied. And God is the one who will see it through because of the broken vows of his people. Like you reap what you sow. And, and, and the seeds that you've sown are rebellion against me. And God's saying, I will give you what you want. I, I will give you what you want. Go take care of whatever it is, the other lovers that you're drawn to. And, and I'm out. His grace here is the, is the warning of his intentions. And that grace is to call his people to come home. That's what this whole book is about. The second child name and also point of this sermon is uh, no more pardon. It's not a great name either. And, and we'll read on verse six and seven. She conceived again and bore a daughter and the Lord, the language there is like, it may be his and it may not be his. The first time was bore him a son and now it's like, and she had another baby so we don't know if it's his, and, and maybe it doesn't matter, but it's not specific. And the Lord said to him, call her name, No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not horses or by horsemen. So here's the critical piece. For now... Israel is toast. That's what he's saying. The northern king, you're toast. It's, it's over. I, I, will, I will have no more mercy on you, but Judah will be saved for now. And he says, God will break the bow of Israel. No, no military power can stand against the Lord. And then in verse 7, he, he tells Judah that they will be saved, but they will not be saved by the bow. He's saying the bow can't save you. And you're going to be saved for now until 586 BC. A little spoiler for you, right? Thank you, Babylonians, right? Um, but, but, but he's saying the bow's not even saving you. The, the safety of the people of God is not found in bows or stones or tanks or, 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 or muscles or any human artillery or government. The safety and the strength of God's people is found in the Lord, and nothing in the hands of man can protect you from the Lord, yet he has the power to protect his people. One of the things that we'll wrestle with throughout this series is like, how am I to be thinking about God? Because all the, it's like you just go back and forth, and it's really tough, and I won't pull all those threads today. But, but from the beginning to the end, this is the nature that we read about the Lord. In Psalm 86, 15, for example, but you are my Lord. You are merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Those, those characteristics, the word that Hosea brings is, is nothing less than, than this character on display. And it might not feel like that, but there's this, there's this tough line of translation. If you have a Bible open, look at it. In verse 6, and this is what it says. 
he says, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But that's like weird because like the translators are like, we don't really know what to do with that. And this is what it actually like directly says. For, for I will have no more, uh, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel and I shall completely forgive them. Which doesn't make any sense. But if that's the intended line, then it becomes a really stark contrast of, of judgment and hope, which is our life in the Lord, a, a perpetual contrast of judgment and hope. <clears throat> One said it this way, a moment will come when God will both execute judgment without mercy and mercy without judgment. There will come a time when God will execute judgment without mercy is the cross. At the cross, Jesus experiences the full wrath of God, and as a result, the people are forgiven in full. So there is this double reality. The, the mercy God delivers is a pardon in spite of guilt. That, that's what Jesus offers on the cross 700 plus years after this is happening in Hosea. God's mindful of this. He's setting it all up so that we might look and see it, that we might see all the attributes of God on, on full display. The mercy God delivers is a pardon in spite of guilt. You are pardoned and set free even though you are guilty. And it is at the same time the judgment that God delivers is unrelenting and it contains no more mercy despite the innocence of Jesus. They don't see Jesus here. He's telling them that, that they have no pardon by their rebellion, that, that the, the well of mercy has run dry. But, but we can see the reality that's, that's, that's even bigger than this. So, so what he's saying is, is imagine you've, you've been an inmate and, and your, your term is life in prison or, or, or maybe even that, that you would die by execution or whatever. And, and he's saying, and, and so you come up for a parole hearing and, and you think, man, I, I know I did this and I know I did this, this crime, but, but maybe I would be pardoned. And what he's saying is, is, here's your judgment. There is no pardon. There is no mercy. You get what you, you, get what you deserve. That's, that's what, and so, so what he's saying is, is Israel, Sit in your fate because this is what you've earned. That's, that's what he's telling him to name the second kid. And then, then the third point is this, no more people. Or you are no longer my people. Literally, but that doesn't sound so good when you look at it on the screen, does it? Right? You are no more my people. And so let's read on Hosea 1, 8. And nine. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son also. Like who is the father? We're not really sure. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. This is a really big deal. We'll get into it in a second. But, but this, is just no, this is worse than a parent saying this. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. If you've ever been, you know, a kid 
You know, that's like the slayer. That's like, like, if you're a parent, you can't use that, like, but three times before the kid's 10. But when you do, it's just an automatic, like, the guilt, you know, and tears. Like, I'm not mad at you. I'm just disappointed. Don't say it. I'm just disappointed. Like, no one wants that. And in another way, you know, the word microcosm is a small reality that points to a much greater one. So, the, the most vivid microcosm of life is, is school lunch. And, and I say this like not in a joking way, but obviously lots of pictures and lots of, hey, first day of school and, and all that. Like kids and adults alike, and I've talked to many even this week, it, adults as well as kids who say, oh, gosh, school lunch. Like, like you get your tray, you get your food, and like, you turn that corner and you either, you either have safe people or you don't. And, and no one wants to turn that corner and not have safe people. Like, like I will find a space of my own. There's no space of my own. I have to find people not my own. Like that is, that's, that's brutal and that's tough. And that is the, the microcosm of life. Like schedules are out since, since kids have been kids in school where they printed schedules. Kid grabs schedule. What's the first thing they do? They look in the middle of it and they look for A, B, or C, or one, two, or three, because you just want to, and then, and then like, hey, like what lunch you in? Or hey, what lunch you in? Or, or hey, what lunch you in? Or Hey, what lunch are you in? Just give it time. Like, it's, it's a search for a place and a people to belong. It's, it's a social jersey to wear that seats you in the comfort of familiarity and trust and care and enjoyment and affinity, something that connects us together and, and, and maybe in middle school or high school or elementary school or for you teachers in the lunchroom. It, like, it doesn't ever go away. The, the, and, and maybe it's, it's chess club that's an affinity or maybe it's football or but you're like looking for a shared community and and here's the thing the entire covenant was established around this relationship between God and his people it wasn't chess or football or hellfire club I'm just kidding if you don't know what that is it doesn't matter right but uh that that's a stranger things reference it's okay but you're like looking for a place to to just sit and what God said was was in Exodus 6, I will, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. I am yours and you are mine. And what he's saying is, look, no matter what, no matter if it's chess or football, there is an affinity among the people of God that's greater than any of those things. It's not what you wear or the music that you listen to or the sport that you play or the theater that you're in. It's none of those things, but, but it's this that defines us together, that I am yours and you are mine. The most beautiful affinity that draws the same Father, that they share the same God, that, that He is God and, and we are His. And you always have a place at that table. That's what He invited them into. 
Remember, God is rescuer, and he is redeemer, and he is salvation from, from slavery. And he says that in context when he had pulled them out of Egypt. And he said, I am yours, and you are mine. He is God, and he doesn't save so that we might earn our share of his heart or that we might prove ourselves to be merely kind of some dutiful or, or, or just uh, obedient out of obligation or that our devotion is just because we have to. But he saves us to be our God and invites us to be his people. There's no greater king to live under. There's no greater jersey to wear. You have a place as my people. So God, through, through wildly vivid illustration, is undoing the bottom layer of God. Is direct, he's directly refuting the covenant formula at its most basic foundational level in a relationship. What's a proud parent say? When their kid does something, sings the solo or whatever, like, that's my girl. That's, hey, that's my boy. What's the, the proud husband say when his wife enters the room? There she is. Look, look at that beauty. What does God say to his people? I'm yours and you're mine. And the script flips. And what he says here is, you are not mine. What he says here is, is not my boy. Not my girl. What he says here is, you have abandoned and you have forsaken me. Go take whatever it is. Go take whoever it is that you want. We're through. Because that's what you want. See, the same reason why adoption is so beautiful is is why abandonment is so difficult. We have a ton of families in here. Adoption, foster care, like a, a load of stuff. And, and just this past week, I, I, I had written that line and then I saw Adam and Beth Jacob talking about their adoption story and Adam and Beth. I mean, you shouldn't have posted it publicly if you didn't want me to talk about it. So there you go. Uh, Adam and Beth are like kind of talking about their adoption story and, and, and telling uh, of the honor and love of what they're doing through adoption and all the people that are supporting them and all this stuff. And, and Adam says at one point, and this is paraphrase-ish, in, in ways that only Adam Jacob could say, but he says, adoption is delightful. And he says, it's impossible not to rally around. And in some family, we get to delight. He said, when you think of these moments of sheer delight in your life, like like having kids or, or a wedding or, or these moments of life that, that just bring sheer delight in the moment. Adoption is an invitation into that delight. The way God sees you is that he's delighted about you. And it's the most pure form of who you are because of what Jesus did. And it's fun to think about life in that way. What would the world look like if we knew that God delighted in us because of what Jesus did. Look, this kid is going to be amazed. And this is what Adam Jacob says to you, right? But you are delightful. And when God made you, he was delighted. And because of Jesus, he's delighted in you today. See, there's nothing worse that God could have judged his people with 
than to simply say that they weren't his. Hosea is declaring judgment of God and, 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 and to his adulterous, idolatrous, right? He's warning that despite the past, because of hardness of heart and rejection and turning away, they will no longer have peace and they will no longer be pardoned. They will no longer be a people of God. They will be on their own. And that's really tough. But, but here's the thing. Christians need to sit fully in the judgment of God against sin. Because so often we, we're just drawn to like receive the grace and the love and we forget this part of the game. We forget this part of the relationship without the reality of the, the darkness and the stark contrast between us. We can't fully embrace the beauty of the light piercing and penetrating the darkness to bring us into that marvelous light in him through Christ alone. Give me a couple more minutes, because there's a fourth one is this, yet promise remains. All that's true, and yet promise remains. Let's read, uh, starting in verse 10, yet, all that's true, yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, it shall be said of them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. So much in all of this. There, there's allusion to, you know, the sands of the sea, and it's like the stars of the sky that, that God had promised Abraham, that my people are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as numerous as the sands in the sea. And later that, that will bring a king and that king will sit on the throne of the line of David and he, sh he shall rule. And, and the prophet Isaiah tells us, for to us a child is born and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Later, all of these things, all the promises of God will take flesh in the person Jesus. Zach Fonville, who does the graphics. Can you throw just that title graphic up, Melissa, just for a second? So, uh, you know, we, hey, graphic stuff, he sends this. And I said, man, that looks like really cool. Um, like, what does it mean, right? And he said this. Uh, my, my thought while I was doing this was, was divine versus human pursuit. If a human has a God-shaped hole, their pursuit is to fill it. Israel was filling it with Baal. That's the false god we'll learn more about. General idolatry, power, human pursuits, all the junk in that God-shaped hole. God's divine pursuit of Israel sought to wash out the cruft of sin and fill it again. The water coming in will wash and clean out the sediment. Right? That, that tells the story. And, and here's the reality Israel is behaving as an unfaithful bride because she is searching for satisfaction, for love, for affection, for a place to fit, for a place, a, a table to sit, a people to belong, for ultimate freedom, for ultimate peace, for joy, for, for fulfillment. And all of those things 
are already theirs in the home that they have made with the Lord. And what, what we get to understand is, is just the same. That all of those things are ours because of who we are in relationship with the Lord. Despite the fact that they stayed out late last night and they didn't make it home till morning the night before, God issues a promise and he's consistent with his vows that they will, they will uh, no longer have peace. And now he says, I will bring them peace. I will bring peace to this people. And he says, I will bring undeserved and relentless mercy to my people. And I will be present with a people who, who I call my own. This is why he has Hosea marry this unfaithful bride. And so we say God's relationship with his people is the story of commitment to an unfaithful bride. Despite sin, unfaithful rebellion and forsaking God's promise, it God's promise never has been, nor it will be, in jeopardy. And what that means for us is that in Christ, he pardons his people to bring them into presence in the promise of all who call him Lord. The band can come on up. I'll throw three real quick things at the end for you to say, well, what do I do with all of this, right? In just a minute, we'll get a chance to reflect and repent and respond through some questions, but we get to lament the work of sin, our contribution, our unfaithfulness. We get to acknowledge the real places where we rebel against the Lord. We get to heed the warning of judgment and consider it grace. The judgment that we see come down on Israel, we get to look at that, and we get to know that that's our same fate apart from Jesus himself. And third, we get to behold the promise of mercy and let it lead to a life of faithful devotion. We can respond by looking at the questions on the screen. You can sit right where you are. You can stand up and sing. You can pray over there at that prayer bench. You can pray with somebody by that red tree. My wife and I will be back there. would love to pray with you. We can respond by taking communion for those who are in Christ. We get to remember his body that was broken, his blood that was shed. And we get to take of the cup and, and the juice that reminds us of his blood that was spilled for us that we might be forgiven. If you're not in Christ, that's not for you. But if you are, then we get to remember and declare. We get to share a meal with the Lord and with one another. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. It's tough. It takes sometimes even work to get at, to figure out what it is that you're showing us or inviting us into. Would you let us do the work? Would you let us strive to know you that we might be your people? Would you, would you call even right now the, the one who is straying away, maybe even slowly, would you call him home? Would you let him know that there is no better place to be than in your arms? Thank you for your love for us in Jesus' name.